It's on page 1011 in the church Bibles in their black things in the seat in front of you. If you reach in and grab it, pull it out, 1011. And we'll be reading Mark 8, 22 to the end, I think, to 38. just like to say hello to Barrow out there in internet land. And then I shall commence. They came to Bethsaida, and some people bought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His, his, his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, oh, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Yeah, but what about you? He asked, uh, Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You? You're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man shall be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Well, good evening, Night Church. Hey to you guys at home in COVID land over there. Hope you're doing well. Keep your Bibles open to page 1011, I think it was, Mark chapter 8. I'm going to pray for us and we shall get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for these scriptures. Help us to give ourselves and our attention to them fully now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sad to say, friends, that I've had to get glasses for the very first time in my life just recently. Seeing things from at a great distance away is no problem at all, but up close, especially first thing in the morning and last thing at night, it was all getting a bit blurry. So here's what they look like. What do you reckon? 
Uh, no, we, that's just so sexist. I was going to say smarter or older, and you whistled. Uh, I would try to read the nutritional information at the bottom of the cereal packet, and I had no idea what it said. So I, I got the glasses, which makes reading first thing and last thing a whole lot easier. So then I went to look at the nutritional information on the cereal box, and it read, don't worry about the calories, fatso. It's your eyes that are the real problem. <laughs> thing is, when I went to get my glasses, the optometrist said, look, you probably need to go to the doctor as well, because often people who need glasses also have high cholesterol. So I went to get tested for that, and it turns out I've got high cholesterol too. So now I'm thinking, maybe I shouldn't have got the glasses in the first place. But it seems to me that it is very very important to see clearly, isn't it? I mean, if you can't see clearly, you uh, accept a whole lot of limitations upon your life, like where you can go, how you can get there, what you can enjoy. Without seeing clearly, you miss out on opportunities. You also miss out on important warnings. So it's no small thing to see clearly and not something to be taken for granted. And we're going to discover that today as we wrap up our series in Mark's Gospel at this midpoint, which is really a turning point of the Gospel, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. Now all term we've been trekking our way through Mark chapters 4 to 8, and we've seen Mark's vivid description of Jesus, whether that's been in his intriguing teaching in his parables, where he has implored us to consider carefully what we hear from Jesus, or perhaps through Mark's dynamic presentation of Jesus as the authoritative Son of God, as he demonstrated authority over the natural elements, the wind and the waves, over uh, demons, over disease, and even over death itself when he raised a little girl from the dead with a simple command, get up. We've anticipated Jesus' rejection by the Jewish officials when we read of his rejection in his own hometown from amongst his family members. And of course, the execution of John the Baptist, who just paved the way for so much of Jesus' ministry. But we've also seen Jesus presented as the compassionate shepherd king who... Uh, feeds 5,000 of his fellow Israelites and then who surprisingly extends that grace and favor to those outside of Israel who were also typically thought of being outside of God's plans. So you remember last week there was a Syrophoenician woman, a deaf and a mute man, as well as 4,000 outsiders in a remote region east of the promised land. And you think, wow, could that offer, offer hope to us? who are in a far more remote region than that. Well, I say that we've seen all that before, but of course we're not alone. The disciples have seen it, the crowds have seen it, the Jewish religious figures have also been eyewitnesses. And the, the question for all of us as we round out our series at this halfway point in Mark's Gospel is, do we see Jesus clearly? Now, I think that's what um, this first healing miracle in verses 22 to 26 is all about. You've got to admit, it comes across as pretty weird. For the only time that we can think of, Jesus' power seems to be diluted, doesn't it? His battery seems to be drained. Uh, it's highly unusual. You, you remember back in chapter 5, there was that woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She just touched his cloak and she was healed immediately. The end of chapter 6, wherever he went, villages, towns, the countryside, marketplaces, people would just touch his clothes 
and they would be healed. Lots of them. But here, Jesus is way more personally involved. In verse 23, have a look. Jesus led him by the hand outside the village, spat on his eyes. I can't see how that wouldn't have been awkward. And put his hands on him. It's much more personally involved, isn't it? And yet when Jesus asks him if he can see, well, he can, but it's vaguely. It's opaquely, right? He can't read the nutritional information. He thinks people look like trees walking around. And only after Jesus has a second crack are the man's eyes open. And it says there in verse 25, his sight is restored. He can see everything clearly. Now, I'm sure this healing happened as it is recorded by Mark because there are just detailed eyewitness flourishes throughout. But I think Mark has put it here for us because he sees within this two-stage healing really a parable for the disciples or a parallel for their frustratingly, slowly forming vision of Jesus. I mean, they have great moments, don't they? Remember in chapter 6 when Jesus sends them out and they preach repentance and drive out many demons, heal many diseases. And when all is said and done, these 12 are the ones that have gone all in with Jesus. But you've got to admit, for people who have got ringside seats to all the action, they seem very slow on the uptake, don't they? You remember when Jesus calms the storm, he has to say to them, you still got no faith? When he walks on water, he says to them, are you still terrified? When he cracks the Pharisees for being obsessed with their human traditions and, and being riddled with hypocrisy, he says to the disciples, Do you, are you still so dull? And then after he feeds 5,000 with just a few loaves and has 12 baskets left over, then he feeds 4,000 with just a few loaves and has seven baskets left over, the disciples are getting worried that they haven't brought enough bread for lunch the next day. And he says to them, Do you still not understand? Like, catering is not going to be a problem. In the verses immediately before this miracle with the blind man. And so this two-stage miracle where, where a guy goes from blindness to partial sight to seeing everything clearly sets us up for the disciples in the next section. But you know what? It sets up each of us as well and asks the question, do we see Jesus clearly? Or have we got things a bit fuzzy? Well, we'd better listen carefully to what follows so that we can be sure. We've seen um, through the first half of Mark's gospel, it's really dominated by the question, who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man? Isn't it the carpenter, Mary's son? Who is this man is the uh, precise question after Jesus' name had become so well known in chapter 6 that even King Herod had heard about him. And the answers that were given there is, well, he could be one of the prophets or he could be Elijah returned from heaven or he could be John the Baptist returned from the dead. They seem to be the three best guesses in contention at the time because when Jesus raises the same question among his own disciples, here in chapter 8, verse 27, who do people say I am? You can see there in verse 28, the disciples give him these very three same options. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But then it's as if this question 
which has bubbled away for the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, switches from being an armchair theological discussion to being a, you know, a fireside chat to being an uncomfortable personal dialogue between God and us as Jesus follows up with the personal question. Yeah, you're fine. Verse 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Peter pipes up, you know, wonderful, beautiful, flawed, well-intentioned, yet clumsy Peter. Well, you are the Messiah. And if you'd have been watching a musical or an opera, an orchestra would have been rising. The timpani drums would have been building to a crescendo and then to a point of complete silence in which you could hear a pin drop and which prevailed for an uncomfortably long period of time to heighten the suspense. You guys are okay with uncomfortable, awkward silences, aren't you? You are the Messiah. And you think, yes. Yes. He's got it. He's got it. And I realize that, you know, um, Jesus warning them not to tell anyone at first glance doesn't sound like he's nailed it, but he has. All the hopes of Israel have long awaited a God-appointed, a God-anointed king to relieve them from their oppressors are being fulfilled right now in the person of Jesus. And Peter, wonderful, beautiful, flawed, well-intentioned and clumsy Peter is perhaps the first person to see it clearly. Jesus is the Messiah, the hope of the ages, now standing before him in flesh and blood. I mean, wow! Right, if you were watching a musical or an opera, every instrument would be exploding in a joyful cacophony. What a moment! What a moment! But it's not over because Jesus then starts to answer the question that will preoccupy the second half of Mark's gospel. First half, who is this man? Oh, he's the Messiah. Second half, what has the Messiah come to do? Well, let's listen into Jesus' take on that from verse 31. Read along with me. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter, thank God I love him, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Suffer many things, be rejected by Jewish officials, be killed and then rise again, plain as day, no murky parables. And Peter doesn't like it one bit. And Jesus' response to Peter, I think, is distributed among the disciples, it seems to me, in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oops. Kids uh, say the darndest things, don't they? All sorts of funny things. Um, I remember a time when uh, we were driving to the Blue Mountains on holidays when... Uh, all of our three boys were very young, strapped into their car seats in the back row of the car. And just as we got to the bottom of the mountains, you know that bit where you pass Penrith, it goes left and up towards the mountains. 
And one of the boys said to the car, right, I love you, mummy, but I don't really love you, daddy. Good to be clear? Okay. Now, Carolyn, my wife, said to him, you don't really mean that. You love daddy. And he was kind of grinning um, as he was shaking his head. And he said, no, I don't really love you, daddy. And Carolyn tried again. She said, you don't mean that? And he replied a third time, I don't love you, daddy. So I stopped the car and I got him out and I got down low. It's important when talking to kids to get down to the level. And I said, seeing as though you don't love me, you can walk to the top on your own. And I got back in the car and drove off. Uh, I didn't actually do that because that would be like um, just a wicked parenting move. Um, and in fact, all the other crowds actually thought that was quite funny. Doesn't matter that you missed it, that's okay. My sister, when she was three or four, uh, she was a, a spirited kid, right? And she was um, naughty one day. And she was very rude to my mum. She wrote a card to apologise, which my mum kept. This is what she wrote. She said, Mum, I'm so sorry for being rude. It must have been the devil in me. <laughs> must have been the devil in me. <laughs> what a thing for a four-year-old to say. Now, I reckon she didn't mean she was demon-possessed. She just meant that she'd given voice in kind of a four-year-old thinking kind of way. She'd just given voice to her, her sinful kind of human itches and inclinations. Right? And something very similar, I think, is going on here when Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, for starters, talk about a mood killer. Right? You go from mountaintop to earth with a flat thud in 0.7 seconds. Peter's delighted that Jesus is the Messiah because along with all Israel, he expects the Messiah to liberate Israel from their Roman oppressors, restoring them to a flourished, promised land for good. And of course, Israel is going to need a king with God's seal of approval, absolutely key to victory. There's no room for weakness, suffering, defeat. It would be glorious and triumphant. And so, of course, Peter balks when Jesus starts talking about rejection and death and suffering many things. Not a part of the program, as far as he could tell. And so when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's not accusing him of being satanic or demon-possessed or of blasphemy or even of obvious evil. He's just saying, Peter, you want the kingdom without the cross, right? Satan has already offered him that during his temptation in the wilderness. Peter, you want political triumph. But Jesus is, has something far greater in mind. We are talking about the liberation from our oldest enemies of sin and death, and it's available to all. The desire for a national military victory over the enemies of the day is not obviously evil, but it is counter to the plans of God. It's smooth, it's attractive, naturally appeals to human instincts. So get behind me, Satan. You haven't got in mind the things of God, just the things of men. Must have been the devil in you, you know? For suffering, rejection, even death, and only then resurrection, well, that has the fingerprints of God all over it. That is his plan. Can you see that clearly? Because Peter couldn't. And unless you can, you can't see Jesus clearly either. 
and in fact neither can you see Christian discipleship clearly which is our last thing to consider today so it seems to me that our passage works by first having this two-stage miracle which is in some ways a parable or a parallel for Peter's experience right he sees Jesus for who he is but he doesn't see everything clearly he understands Jesus is the Messiah but he cannot comprehend that being the Messiah could involve suffering rejection and even death but the, pan- the passage finishes with Jesus telling us what it means to be one of his disciples. He shows us how to see discipleship clearly. And we want to zoom in on verse 34, very important verse in this passage. Let's read it together. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Friends, that is the quintessential description of a disciple of Jesus. You know, disciple means student but it also means follower you want to follow jesus you must deny yourself take up your cross and follow him in his footsteps so to speak now by deny yourself he doesn't mean um you know you just give up something like chocolate or liquor or cigarettes for lent he means you put to one side your agenda for your life in which you do what you want to do in the way you want to do it The spirit of our age says the highest goal of humanity is an individual one in which you find out who you really are and then you express it. The greatest evil in our age is to say to someone, please don't do that. And yet in this verse, Jesus is saying, please don't do that. It's wildly countercultural. Instead of doing what you want to do, how you want to do it, Jesus implores any follower of his to live the life Jesus wants you to live in the way Jesus wants you to live it. It's wildly countercultural. He puts another spin on it by saying, have a look up there, um, you must take up your cross. What he's doing is he's appropriating a metaphor of his own upcoming execution on a Roman cross. And part of the humiliation of that whole experience is you would carry the instrument of your torture to the place of your execution, right? You would have seen pictures of Jesus carrying his own cross up to the hill where he was crucified. Notice, Jesus doesn't say that some of you will be required to do that. He says, anyone who wants to be my follower must do that which means he doesn't require literal martyrdom, although plenty of people have literally been killed because of their allegiance to Jesus and the gospel. Not after martyrdom per se, nor is he asking us to be monks, where we separate ourselves from the world and live in splendid and holy isolation. I think what he's asking is actually even harder. He's saying you put to death a self-focused life that is lived for the benefit of yourself and maybe just your little family, your little clan, and instead you live for Jesus... You live his ways, you're focused on the advancement of his name and his kingdom and his gospel in all the days of your little life because, friends, they all count. And it may not change what you do, right? You might still be a teacher, computer programmer. Is that what they do? Computer programmers? (laughs) Personal carer. So it may not change the what, but it definitely changes the how, how you do it. It certainly changes your motives for doing it. It's got to change the how and the why, even if it doesn't change the what. And then Jesus says, follow me, which means both mimic me, do as I have done, but it also means walk in the same path 
of rejection and suffering before resurrection and glory. Christian people, the reason you don't do whatever it takes to get ahead in your career, but you pursue honesty and kindness to colleagues, even though it might cost you, the reason you don't cheat on your taxes, but pay your share for the welfare of society, the reason you pursue sexual faithfulness and purity rather than promiscuity, the reason you give generously to many causes rather than hoard wealth for yourself, the reason you put your personal, perhaps even your professional reputation on the line by confessing your allegiance to Christ in the workplace and among your family and friends rather than keeping it as a secret, the reason you vote thoughtfully, recycle carefully, use the resources of our world sparingly, pursue a life of simplicity rather than accumulate possessions and experiences, the reason as you get older you would raise your children in the love and fear of the Lord, the reason you gather for worship each Sunday, memorize scripture, pray fervently on all occasions, the reason you might be a youth leader, a kids' church leader, by the way, fellas, we need some of you to lead kids' church, be, be a man, stand up to the plate and do it. The reason you might do that, the reason you might put your eye device down from just a second, which is a step of faith, because you think if you put it down and you disconnect from it, you will die, right? Just try it, you won't. But the reason you do that, so that you have a few moments of silence and solitude with God, away from all the bombardments of the world, the reason why you don't give yourself to middle-class drunkenness, the reason why you will respect your husband or wife, your parents deeply, the reason why you love your friends deeply, the, why, the, the reason why you will reach out to an outsider warmly is not because you're a bang-up good person, is it? Is it? It's because you have decided to follow him, to deny yourself and to take up your cross. And so, friends, I want to say, if it feels hard at times, I think that's good. Because it seems to me that it should. It's to be expected. Now, in his great kindness, Jesus not only lays down the law, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, but he also gives us really, really good reasons for doing just that. Number one, unless you live for him, you're going to lose your life anyway. You know this, right? Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You're going to lose your life either way. So lose it in the way that means you will ultimately save it for eternity. Lose it well by living for Jesus. Number two, it is a really good deal. Right, verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I think what Jesus is saying is that following him, though it involves self-denial, means you gain more than the whole world. He's certainly saying the preservation of your soul is unexchangeable. Nothing is worth trading for. It's certainly not the basic pleasures of this mortal coil. When one of my boys was young, his favourite cartoon was Ben 10. Ben 10 looks like this. Cartoon. And Ben 10 had a watch called an Omnitrix, which looks like this. You can see it on his wrist, which allows him to transform into 10 different alien forms, each with unique superpowers. We bought my son a replica Omnitrix. It cost $35. And yes, this was the one that said he didn't really love me. 
One day he came, <laughs> there was a bit of time between, I think. <laughs> One day he came home from school and he told us that he had traded this Omnitrix for a crappy, tiny, plastic toy periscope that one of his mates got out of a Christmas cracker. I explained to him that he did not get a good deal from this trade. <laughs> Short conversation. Now, we can think that denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus is a bad trade. We can think that, you know, we give up our gold. And what do we get in return? Something cheap and unreliable. Friends, don't you know that we will inherit the universe? The few short days of our lives lived for him, which, by the way, are lived with him, which is excellent, is no bad trade. Why would you forfeit your soul forever for a few minutes of self-absorbed pleasure and comfort? Third reason Jesus gives is about what happens at the end of time. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. You think, he's saying, if you think that Jesus and his words are shameful to the extent that they're not worth denying yourself for, they're not worth spending this life to support and advance, he will be ashamed of you upon his return. Now, friends, verse 38 is not talking about Christians getting a bit embarrassed, blushing, turning a bit red when they're sharing the gospel. Okay, It's saying if you really don't want to live for him now, he won't want to live with you in eternity. Now, I realize that sounds stark, but I, for one appreciate his honesty and that's the third reason he gives as to why it's worth following him now friends as we finish can i say with my glasses uh, with my glasses i can now see things clearly or at least a little more clearly than before with mark chapter 8 the the turning point of the whole gospel, we have an opportunity to see everything more clearly. Who Jesus is, the Messiah, what he came to do, suffer and die before rising again as we celebrate at Easter time, but also what it means to follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him for all the reasons that we have discussed. And so having had the benefit of today and really the benefit of being in Mark's gospel all term, can I ask you the question one more time? Do you see everything clearly? Well, maybe you have for the first time, and in, if that's the case, we do want to give you a chance to place your trust and commit your life to Jesus tonight. And a very common way that people have done that for hundreds and hundreds of years is to pray a prayer in which you admit that you've lived life for yourself you believe that Jesus is the Messiah who conquers our enemies of sin and death through his own death and resurrection, and you commit your life to following him, as we've just discussed. Really, it's, it's as simple as ABC. It's admit, it's believe, it's commit. Now, here is one of those, prepare, those prayers I have prepared earlier. It looks like this. I'm going to read it out in a, in a moment's time. And in a few moments after that, I'm going to invite all of us to bow our heads you might like to close your eyes in prayer. And if you would like to commit your life to Jesus today, 
You just simply repeat the words silently in your own heart and mind after me. And you know what? If you think it would be a good time to recommit your life to him, you sense that you have walked away from him for a long time and you want to get back on track, I think that would be an excellent thing to do as well. Well, let me read this prayer out. Dear God, I admit that I have lived life for myself, doing what I want, how I want. And I'm sorry for that. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah who forgives sin and conquers death through his own death and resurrection. And I commit my life and future to Jesus, denying myself and following him. Amen. I'm going to give us a few moments just to look over that and to think about that. And then in a few moments' time, we're all going to pray. And I'll read the prayer out nice and slowly. And if you want to pray that for yourself, you can just repeat it in the quietness of your own heart and mind. So a few moments to think, and then we'll pray together. Well, let's pray. Dear God, I admit that I have lived life for myself, doing what I want, how I want, and I'm sorry for that. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. who forgives sin and conquers death through his own death and resurrection. And I commit my life and future to Jesus, denying myself and following him. Amen.